Welcome to another episode of Ladywood, the show where two huge fans of Deadwood and one newbie discuss it through a feminist lens. My name is Brandy Sperry. I'm a writer here in Los Angeles. I'm Lynn Sternberger. I am a TV writer here as well. And my name is Sita Sean, a writer and comedian in LA. Today we'll be discussing the eighth episode of the third season, Leviathan Smiles, written by Kem Nunn and directed by Ed Bianchi. Kem Nunn is actually a surfer who later co-created John from Cincinnati with Milch. This first aired July 30th, 2006. Wyatt Earp and his brother arrive in Deadwood, raising suspicions as to whom they work for. The town awaits Hearst's next move as additional reinforcements arrive to help Hearst maintain his power. Aunt Lou's concerns over Odell's safety grow in the wake of his planned involvement with Hearst. Tolliver and Hearst plot against both the Earps and Bullock. Langrish mourns the passing of an old friend. Yeah, one of these things is not like the other. Wyatt Earp! Morgan Earp! <laughs> Rolling into town, which again, like I, I googled it and I was like, did this happen? I guess it did. I guess they did come to Deadwood. I mean, I'm a big Gail Harold fan, but every time he shows up on screen, because I watched so much of um, Queer Spoke, I just mm-hmm. want him to get Randy with like, well, to your, to whoever made the point about like it being gay or Sita, come on. I know. Quiet Earp, that would have been exciting. That would have been. <laughs> that would have been on for season 10. <laughs> it definitely does feel like there's a little sexual tension between him and Seth, though, right? Well, it's two, two incredibly handum, uh, handsome, mustachioed men facing off against each other. I, and it's like, I feel like I've seen this somewhere. <laughs> yeah. I feel like they should draw guns if you catch my meaning. Draw guns. <laughs> One of them will have satisfaction. (laughs) I think that they actually just need to take off their clothes, oil themselves down like Dan did before his big fight, and then do some bare-chested wrestling. That would have done it for me. Yeah, in the thoroughfare. Yeah, in the thoroughfare. Wow, we took that to a weird place. So basically, they're posing as people who saved... Oh, I don't even know. They didn't save anybody. They drove off road agents. They're coming into town. They're celebrating themselves. And some people just take their word for it. And Bullock is like, this is some bullshit. And then I think Al gets a sense of the same and uh, holds Wyatt's feet to the fire and Wyatt confesses. This is now like the Deadwood MO where it's like, you're not here for the reasons you say you are. They're like, yep. And they're like, "Okay, well, now I can deal with you as a man. This timber claim. Do we buy it? I think they do have the timber claim, but I don't know uh, that that's really their main focus. And it was almost a little jarring for me to remember that supposedly Al's in charge of road agents around here and people have to get his permission for things that felt like such a throwback to the smaller issues of season one that I was like, oh, yeah, is he running any jobs lately? Like, what is does he have other guys out there doing stuff? Totally. It's been a it's been a minute since we heard any of that. And it seems like his character has changed or at least our understanding of his character. So. To think that they're, like, holding up other immigrant families and and potentially murdering them seems weird now. I do love that the climax of the Earp lies is that Seth is irritated that they've left their shit in his shop in a pile. (laughs) Like, it it breaks Seth. Seth's already very stressed out about the publication of the letter. As Martha says, he is not being sweet. (laughs) <laughs> I do love the little moments that we get with them. I mean, once again, Anna Gunn isn't given enough to do, but 
just works the hell out of what she is given, and mm-hmm. their domestic life is interesting to me. But he's definitely stressed out, as usual, and eventually by the end, though, he seems to sort of, like, begrudgingly accept that another former lawman has come to town. They seem like shadow versions of Seth, much more villainous. We always kind of thought of Seth as an upright guy, and Mm -hmm. these guys are just painted as cheating whores out of 11 bucks and, you know, trying to uh, have one over on the entire population. They don't seem to have any redemptive lawman-like qualities. Well, I do think that Morgan is treated more that way and why it's kind of like, you know, dragging his no good brother around is a little more of how I got it. Yeah, but what was their goal in the first place? What was the point of the road agent lie? Did they just roll into town as heroes to have a good reputation from the jump? Ah. Oh, you mentioned, Brandy, you mentioned the letter. So the letter is published. Merrick publishes it. We see him. It's the very first scene. He's putting it out. It definitely riles her step. He comes and he threatens him eventually. I mean, it's interesting. It definitely adds to Hearst's feelings of resentment toward Deadwood that this letter comes out. But he had already put into motion what we see happen at the end of the episode, which is the arrival of his men, of his hired guns. Right. So I guess the only extra thing from this would be whether he was intending only to send for reinforcements and sort of make a show of power or whether he's going to order them immediately to strike because now he's pissed. I'm not sure. What do we think these guys are actually going to do? What could they do, I guess, is more my question. They're not just going to like go murder Seth, right? I feel like in real life, maybe that's what would happen. Like, or I guess this is based on real life. So whatever. I don't know what George Hurst did in real life. But like, if this is this kind of guy in this kind of world, yeah, maybe he just executes his enemies and gets on with it. But like, we know that we're in a TV show where the lead actors are not going to die. So how is this going to go down? I wish that we had a tiny bit more context for like what could happen, what they think he might do once his men are there. Yeah, it's too bad that Ellsworth, uh, like Alma, isn't invited to a seat at the table because Ellsworth could have gone in her proxy. And then Ellsworth, who is the person with the most information about George Hurst, is kind of like missing from this entire episode, you know? Mm -hmm. It's a great point. Anyways, we'll see what happens because here they are. They've pulled into town. I I hope Wyatt Earp is on the good guy's side now. Yeah, if it's going to go down as like gunfight at the OK Corral, then like... I don't remember quite how violent it all gets in the night. I remember a little bit of what we might see, but not totally of how hard her strikes. So let's talk about the failure of memory. So back when William got got kicked by the horse, I had thought somehow that Steve got kicked by the horse because my memory was conflating that with this episode. So we see that the general is planning to go to San Francisco Steve is really upset because uh, he kind of offered him a job, but he would never actually offer him a job because, you know, the general needs to remember his place. I don't know. But he actually tries to remove a horseshoe to fuck with the general's plan. Instead, he gets kicked in the head. And we don't see it, which is maybe a blessing because we know how cheesy it can look when you try to do the horse and the the body, William's little (laughs) dummy getting thrown into the alleyway. We do get this very interesting scene of the general 
who has called in the doc who diagnoses him as probably not going to recover. It's very serious. And he's instructed to feed him. First of all, he's paid for the doctor. What an upstanding mm-hmm. guy. And while he all he wants to do is leave, he ends up kind of having one over on Steve by flinging all this food at his face. And then his humanity kicks in and he like cleans him up, kind of. It was mm-hmm. it was interesting. I'm glad that we've gotten a little more with Fields before he's planning to leave. Like, I do think that this is, has turned into a really interesting character. This was the most interesting I thought we'd seen him. Yeah, I think uh, the whole question that we've been asking for the last few episodes about why are we following Steve's story? Why are we back here again? Why are we listening to another one of his racist rants? I guess I felt really satisfied when the horse kicked him in the head, but <laughs> yeah. I don't know if it, it was worth three episodes of uh, of Steve just constantly spewing like hate from his mouth hole. I think I could have uh, dealt with him dying a lot earlier. <laughs> Agreed on that point. Totally. Also dying in this episode is the old actor whose name I still don't know. Chesterton? Okay. Chesterton. <laughs> I think the only reason I know that is from the subtitles, like watching with the closed captions on. Uh, <laughs> so he's dying. He seems to be drowning in his lungs. And the troupe decides to give him a tour of the theater, even though it's still under construction. And then there's this very touching scene that has nothing to do with anything else really happening. It's definitely like the Shakespeare moment, right? It's literally Shakespeare. They're quoting King Lear to each other. Yeah. As he Is dies. that how actors die? Yeah. Yes. They ask for their final line <laughs> and then it doesn't come and then they extinguish. <laughs> the little on the nose. <laughs> A little bit. He's gone. He's gone. <laughs> I'm sorry. The, everything with the actors is just a little unintentionally hilarious to me. <laughs> it's very overwrought. Very, very much the same. <laughs> you know what amused me in this episode was Jack and Hurst and this voodoo chiropractic care thing. What is this? He's trying to be like a Reiki practitioner or whatever. <laughs> it's a little unconventional. It's a little... It's a little different, but it's, it seems to help Hearst. And then, of course, it earns us this really hilarious juxtaposition between Jack and Al on Al's balcony and Hearst across the way being like, I let this man touch me naked and let him into my confidence. And he's besties with Al. They go way back. He's desperate. Anything to help the bad back, right? This This I like. It's so weird and hilarious. But essentially, this is a placebo effect on Hearst, right? That he says that anything could have possibly helped because Jack is just making this shit up as he goes along. Right. And to me, that's fun to see this guy who thinks of himself as so like coldly logical and only reacting to the facts and the situation and everything to that he would fall for something ridiculous like this in his desperate moment, the same way anybody might. Yeah. I mean, he got fully naked for Jack Langrish. <laughs> Mm-hmm. he was like buck naked i was like what like i was shocked that george Hurst would put himself in such a vulnerable state you know like there's no there's not the captain to watch over <laughs> his his like weird nude reiki session with uh language they could have just murdered him good point sita they should have just murdered him maybe yeah. that would solve the problem except then who comes in to work the the claims I don't know. Yeah, there, there's definitely been a few moments in this whole season where I'm like, can't somebody just kill him? 
he lives in the hotel. He's not like in a fortress. Mm-hmm. Can't somebody? Can't Dan just go in with his knife and slit his throat, and it's all over? Or I, do they feel that then the Pinkertons would descend, and it would be a whole other thing? I don't know. Good question. I wish they would at least discuss it. What would happen if we just murdered the guy? Maybe Seth would put a stop to it. Maybe whatever would happen. But like, let's let's at least have that chat. Yeah, I feel like that's a very damn question. What if we just murdered the guy? <laughs> Right? I mean, he pulls his knife out in an instant when uh, Wyatt Earp is sitting in Al's office. And I was like, oh, the knife. Yes. This could be a problem solver. Other things. Jane is crashing on Joni's floor at O'Shaughnessy's. I mean, we get a very funny quote out of it, but really no further development. When Joni and Jane are first leaving... And Shaughnessy says he doesn't want vile affections at his boarding house. Well, I disagree. But we get we get this amazing, like, fuck yourself with a fist punch up your ass today at the present moment. I love the way her brain works. It does seem that she's struggling with their, like, are they, aren't they relationship, though. Because right after that, she starts yelling about how she, she hasn't really moved in and then storms off. She's a tricky one to nail down. To literally nail. (laughs) (laughs) It doesn't seem like they have, you know, nailed each other, though, because Jane is sleeping on the floor. Yeah. No, no. I feel like that's a ways off. Like, they're still so tentative around one another. Jumping back to Hearst for a second, can we talk about the moment that he has with Lou when she wants to send Odell the brooch that was discussed in the previous episode that she couldn't find? I think this is really interesting that this happens in the same episode as the silly, you know, chiropractic session, because he's actually very terrifying here, Mm -hmm. the way that he speaks to her and seems to be edging towards being fed up with her. Mm -hmm. Because she uh, talks about the brooch and he, I think his parting statement is like, I came in here for the dinner. I didn't want to hear about your stupid brooch. Like, that's kind of how he left it, right? Yeah, he was like, I thought you were coming in to get my boots. Oh, the boots. He mocks her for like being superstitious. But then the undercurrent of that is really like, do you think that some harm is going to come to your son at my hands because of me? And she can't say yes to that implication, right? She has to just stare at him silently and then take the boots and clean them. And I just really, it was a heartbreaking moment for me in that moment because it just reinforced how trapped she is and how few options she has was in the orbit of this man. She said so many bad choices that she had to make, like in the previous episode when she's arguing with Odell. Um, it, I think it's apparent that she sent him to Liberia when he was really young. Because she said that she wanted to send him away before the hell that was coming for all the black people in America. And then he rebuts with that Liberia has as much hell as America did, which I I don't know. I was not in Liberia at the time. I couldn't tell you the conditions of. You were there just after. (laughs) I was there just after. (laughs) Just after Odell got there for the gold claim. Um, And then Odell's sort of argument back to aunt lou is that had you not sent me away maybe you would be able to like control me more and i was like oh that's like a terrible thing to say to your mother like at at the same time being a very like realistic thing that like a kid who feels like his mother has abandoned him would say to her even Mm -hmm. though she was trying to act in his best interest she's still trying she's like uh, as a motherly figure i think i really 
enjoyed all of Aunt Lou's sort of moves to try to protect her son because you can see how much she loves him and how everything she's doing is trying to save him. Um, but it's she's just in an impossible circumstance. I mean, she's she's in a sort of if it's not technically being called slavery, it, it, it is practically it is mm-hmm. in practice slavery and, you know, was trying to offer him a different life. But we just see how completely intractable her situation is. There are no options for her. Yeah. Wow. On that happy note, <laughs> did we have most least feminist moments, anything like that? I, I was upset that Martha was given fuck all to do. She does have funny lines, but I'm like, let's do something with her. It's Anna Gunn, for Christ's sake. It's Anna Gunn, for Christ's sake. We see Joni again. Uh, in the empty schoolhouse that Mose is watching. Mose is still around, apparently. Kind of forgot yeah. about that guy. He's so good-natured now, it's insane. <laughs> yeah, I, nearly dying has given him 100% a new personality. Oh, yeah. just like a gentle soul sitting in the dark, making sure the schoolhouse is safe. I'm like, this is a far cry from the <laughs> original Mose, but sure. Um, come on. Like, he was getting ahead at the gambling table. Like, this is just, I don't buy it. Yep. But I guess it's a minor thing, so whatever. Yeah, they're not trying to give Moses a storyline. I guess they're going to actually move into this new schoolhouse, which I think, again, is some magical timeline stuff that it's actually been built. I'm like, when did this get built? Oh, yeah, they hired the contractors yesterday. <laughs> I'm ready. I'm ready for whatever is about to happen. That's all I have to say. I want to yeah. I want to see people get fucked up. Yeah, because at the end of the episode, that's when the 25 bricks come into town. Yep. So hopefully something happens with those and it isn't just more dudes sitting around glowering at each other. <laughs> we finally have a cliffhanger. My bloodlust is rising. Let's get some, let's get some violence in here. Bullock's like, let me write a strongly worded letter. <laughs> it's not cutting it. That whole Peaches meeting just resulted in a strongly worded letter. It yes. was kind of like it. It was like an internet comment about George Hurst, you know? <laughs> An open letter to George Hurst. I see you, and you are not polite. (laughs) (laughs) What is it that Martha told Seth? You are not sweet? Sir, you are not sweet. To which Seth replied, maybe I'll be twice as sweet tonight. Oh my god, what what version of this is Sita watching? (laughs) (laughs) The gay version. I would like a season pass, please. All right. Well, it seems like some exciting shit will happen next week. And uh, I don't recall what it is. So I, I'm ready for it. Uh, until then, we are on Twitter at LadyWoodCast. I'm at Lynn Sternberger. I'm at WeBrandy, O-U-I-B-R-A-N-D-I. And I'm at SlowBear, S-L-O-B-E-A-R. And thank you so much for listening. Crazy, crazy world that I'm still living.